The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. Our scripture text this morning is Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and can be found on page 985 in the chair Bibles in front of you. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may, be, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, sure, it's good to be with you. Glad you're here. Let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be in your presence together with your people and to be able to know that as we look at this text together, we are having an encounter with the living God and he is speaking. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd give us the kind of um, atmosphere and attitude and environment that we would want to have if we were to meet with you face to face. For you are here by your Holy Spirit, and you are speaking now according to your word. And uh, so I pray, Lord, you'd help me to teach this, please, faithfully, clearly, truthfully. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you'd give us the wisdom and humility to see what you have to say and to believe. And God, that um, you'd save us, that you'd renew us, you'd conform us to Jesus. He's the one we're here for. Let us see him and be like him as we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. So see if you agree. I think one of the most unfashionable aspects of Christianity for today's cultural moment is that of evangelism. Evangelism is not in style. It's not fashionable. Uh, we can identify a, f- a few reasons why. You're probably feeling it as I even say the word evangelism. Some Christians, you hear the word and you go, why is that? Well, first of all, evangelism seems self-righteous, doesn't it? Feels that way. It's the idea of saying to someone, I know and you don't. And the subtext under there is, or at least it feels like, because I'm better. That's what the culture feels like. It's why it's unfashionable it seems self-righteous second evangelism seems narrow overly exclusive you can imagine your skeptic friend saying so i know all these people from all these places and all these religions and all these perspectives and you're telling me they're all wrong and you're right narrow feels narrow so evangelism's tough because it seems self-righteous it seems narrow And this next one's probably the worst. Evangelism seems judgmental. Have you noticed in our cultural moment, this is the unforgivable sin? To say someone else is sinning. Can't be doing that. Um, You can't say that something in someone else's lifestyle is wrong. The culture exclaims when we do that, who are you to judge me? Why is that? Why is that the common attitude? It's because in our day, faith has been so hyper-personalized. What's true spiritually is what's true for you. This is an honest, documented truth that what modern Americans believe is that spiritual reality is discovered by what we feel. Our inclinations, our preferences. So in that case, who can be the authority but you? It's true for you. Only you can be the authority on you. And Christian evangelism has to say, the true for you might not be true. God has spoken, and he might disagree with you on a couple things. Just by the way, have you ever had a real relationship in your life where that other person didn't disagree with you sometime? By the way, if you have a God who never disagrees with you, It might be a sign that you made that God up. 
Christian evangelism has to say the true for you might not be true. And the culture says, you're judging me. You can't do that. Um, you're being judgmental. Anyway, all that's to say, right? Because evangelism seems self-righteous, it seems narrow, it seems judgmental. The culture says, hey, it's fine for you to be a Christian. Just don't evangelize. Keep that to yourself. And let's be honest. Many of us do exactly what the culture says. So what do we do with this? I think there's something we need to realize. I'd like to tell you a little story. I remember a conversation I had with a very friendly skeptic on an airplane. And the one thing my new skeptic friend did not like about Christianity was this issue of evangelism. Now, this doesn't always happen in my life, but for once, I've had a moment of clarity in conversation. And I was able to ask him some questions. And I said, so I hear you saying you think your perspective on my evangelism is better than mine, right? And he said, yeah. I said, so I hear you trying to convince me to see it your way because you think that's best for people. Is that right? Yeah. So then I said, aren't you evangelizing me? Yeah. As he was trying to persuade me not to do it, he was doing what he was telling me not to do. He was evangelizing. He was trying to convince me to believe in his better way, to trust his gospel. He was trying to show me that I was wrong and he was right. And by the way, I didn't mind. It was a friendly conversation. But here's the realization you and I need to make as Christians. Really, everyone in the world should think about this. Everyone who aims to persuade on the big ideas of life is evangelizing. Everyone's evangelizing. When you feel the pressure not to evangelize, you're being evangelized. You hear that? You've been evangelized. Evangelism can't be avoided. Anytime you try to think about the big questions of life and what to believe and what to do, that's evangelism. And I hope you realize your culture is constantly evangelizing you. Constantly. Trying to convince you of a different way to see the world. A different view of what's good from a different authority. So evangelism is inevitable. It's inevitable. If you care about the big ideas of life and you want to convince somebody about what's good for human beings, you're going to be sharing some version of a gospel. The good news. This is how we should live. And you're going to have to pick a method or a way to do that. It's going to happen. So the big two questions are these. This is what matters for evangelism. What is your gospel that you share? What is your good news? Is it true? Is it literally actually good news for everyone? And the second question is this. How do you share it? Are you attractive in how you share it? So why do I bring this up? Well, a lot of reasons, but the biggest one for us recently is we're remembering our mission statement here at Fountain of Life. Why a mission statement? Mission statement is like a compass. It gives you clarity on what to emphasize. It gives you something uh, understandable and clear and quick to measure yourself by. This is what I want to be about. And so this is our mission at Fountain of Life. Look at it with me again. I hope you're getting this memorized. Grounded in the gospel. We gather to grow in the gospel and scatter to spread the gospel for the glory of God. So you see what we want to emphasize. You heard that word a couple times, didn't you? Gospel. Gospel. And what's our gospel? We think it's the gospel. It's the good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ as seen in the New Testament. He's the good news, who he is and what he has done. So at Fountain of Life, we want to be grounded in the gospel, which means I want your heart to be, as we saw a couple weeks ago, anchored into Jesus, that you find your need for righteousness in him. You find your hope in him, your security in him, your peace in him, your future in him, your identity in him, your joy in him. You're planted right there on Jesus and what he's done for you and nowhere else. Grounded. And we saw last week that if you're grounded in the gospel, there's a therefore in all of the New Testament letters. Grounded in the gospel, therefore. And the therefore is always one another. If you love Jesus, you will love his body 
And you will be a part of his body. And so you'll meet with others so you can gather to grow in the gospel. Because none of us has made it. None of us is all there. None of us is totally mature. And we need one another to further know and grow in Jesus. So those are our first two steps. Ground in the gospel. We gather to grow in the gospel. And this morning we're thinking of, well, what now? What happens at 11.45 today when you step back out in the rain and you leave and we scatter? What now? Well, we want to scatter to spread the gospel. To look at this, we're going to look at this uh, section towards the end of Colossians. I'm going to kind of slowly build up to it. A little bit of background. Uh, Paul has never met these folks, this church in Colossae and the nearby churches. Uh, They were planted by one of his buddies, Epaphras. But Epaphras has reported to Paul on how they're doing, and Paul's thankful for them, but they have some questions and some needs, and so he writes them to encourage them. One of their biggest struggles is to find their spiritual fulfillment in things other than Jesus, some sort of devotional activity, or some sort of religious practice, or or even angels. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The sufficiency, the supremacy, Jesus. He's telling them to be grounded in the gospel. Chapter 3, he's telling them how to uh, gather to grow in the gospel. And in chapter 4, he's thinking about scattering to spread the gospel. So that's what we're going to focus on today. But I want to build up to it and give you three, three main aspects or parts or episodes in the sermon today. Number one, I just feel like we have to remember the foundation again, grounded in the gospel, because it's formative for everything else. So we're going to remember the foundation. Second, we need to reckon with an important reality. There's something we need to take very seriously that we often forget. Third, we need to realize God's call to wisdom. So those are our three parts today. Remember the foundation, reckon with an important reality, realize God's call to wisdom. So let's remember the foundation first. To do that, I want to take a glance at Colossians 1, 12 to 14. Colossians 1, 12 to 14. So Paul's praying for this church, and this, uh, he's, he's legitimately praying this, but it's also a directive for the church, something to remember, to treasure. So if you're a Christian, what, what we're going to look at in these 12, 13, 14, in these three verses, is precious. So let's remember this again. Colossians 1, 12 to 14, Paul writes, Give thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now let's keep our eyes there just for a moment. What's that first directive in verse 12? What should be exploding out of our hearts regularly? Thanksgiving. Give thanks. What does that mean? Thanksgiving is the expression of joyful gratitude that comes from receiving a great gift. You know what it means. Somebody gave you something amazing. You were kind of overwhelmed by it. You were humbled by it. It was so thoughtful. It was so loving, and it met a need. Thank you. This is Thanksgiving on steroids. There's nothing better than this, and I want you to see what theological nerds call the indicative. Some of you theological nerds are like, indicative, and others are, huh? Okay. Indicative. It's a, it's a, it's a grammatical mood, and what it means is it's historical fact of the past. It's not something you're trying to accomplish, and hopefully you'll make it. It's something that has already fully and completely been done for you. And so we're going to see the subject in these verses is the Father. So who's the one acting, doing the action? It's the Father. And who are these passive recipients who did not do it but are receiving it? It's his people. And that's why we're thankful. So we're not looking at this saying, oh, I'm so thankful that I'm such a Mature, wise, capable Christian. No. Look at what we're to be thankful for. The Father has acted wonderfully on your behalf. Look at this. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That word saint has baggage, doesn't it? You think of a super duper 
righteous people from the past with like extra bonus righteousness to share. I just want to tell you, there is nobody like that. And so when you think of saints, holy ones, people set apart, you think of this party of saints in light. And if you look at your own heart, do you have a ticket to that party? Are you getting in that room? I look at myself, let's be honest, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to be a saint, a holy one. I'm not, I'm not qualified to get into the Father's living room. I, I cannot do that. I'm a sinner, I'm a, I've, I've made a mess, I'm full of mistakes. But here's something to give thanks to the Father for. Who gets you in there? He has qualified you to be in that room, to be one of the saints in light. I'm not qualified. He has qualified you. He's given you the righteousness of the life of his son. It's stamped upon you. It's like a robe you wear that you could receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ by grace through faith, not according to what you've done, and the Father qualifies you to get in. If you believe that at all, what should you be thinking? Thank you. This is indicative. It's past tense. It's already occurred. He has qualified you. Awesome. Second thing to see, he has delivered you from the domain of darkness. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness. And you think of darkness, that's, that's symbolic, right? I think it means two major things. Number one, total confusion and deception. You have no idea what life is about. And then second, destruction. Deception, destruction. Can you remember the old life when you had no clue what life was about and your life was similar to a tire fire? And even if you had it all together internally, what you valued, what you lived for, you were in darkness. You were deceived. You didn't know what life was about. You didn't know God. You didn't know Christ. You didn't know your sin. You didn't know who you were. You were in darkness. How'd you get out of that? Did you have a... a, Did you find the ladder and climb out? Did you find the rope and pull your way out? Who did the acting here? The Father delivered you, saved you out of the domain of darkness. He woke you up to the light. He changed your address. He delivered you. Are you thankful? Are you thankful he delivered you out of darkness? Third, He has transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, sometimes we think, okay, he's pulled me out of darkness, and there's this middle room, because I'm not good enough to get all the way up or all the way in. So he's just going to put me over here in the, well, do you ever feel that way? God looks at you like, well, that's not true, Christian. When he delivers you, From the kingdom of darkness, there's one place he puts you. And he puts you in the kingdom of his, what son? Did you see the adjective? Beloved son. The son has eternally delighted, or excuse me, the father has eternally delighted in his eternal son. And the son has eternally delighted in his eternal father. And the father has taken you, not according to any works or qualification of your own. He's qualified you, taken you out of darkness, and given you into the kingdom of his son so that you could inherit the kingdom of the son in which he loves. He's given you to Christ, to have Christ as your savior, your leader, your lord, your king. Look at verse 14. In him we have redemption. Jesus bought you with his blood. Can you imagine that? Have you ever saved up a lot of money to buy something you really wanted? When I was in college, and I didn't deserve a guitar this good, I still don't. I saved all my money to buy a wine red Gibson Les Paul Custom. And if you're a guitar nerd, you're like, whoa. Okay? It was so irresponsible of me to spend that much money on a guitar I'm not even good enough to play. Every time I pick it up, I hear all the guitar players of history going. (laughs) But I still love that guitar. I spent a lot for that guitar. 
Jesus spent his blood for you. I don't know what to say to you. But he redeemed you by his blood. The Father redeemed you by his blood. How can you possibly put the value of that transaction into words? His beloved son gave up his life so that you could be beloved like the son. I don't know what to say. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Can you see why we're supposed to be just ridiculously thankful here? Thank you. What's the Father done for you? He's qualified you. He's delivered you. He's transferred you into the kingdom of his son. When your heart's grabbing that, and hopefully it is right now, and you're going, yes, that's me, that's my hope, that's my future, yes, that's exactly what we mean by grounded in the gospel. That's your house. That's where it's built, right there on Jesus. That's so important for what we're going to talk about next, because everything next comes from it. So now we're going to reckon with a certain reality. By the way, if you're going to read Colossians at home after church, and you're like, where was gathered to grow in the gospel? Go ahead and read chapter 3, and you'll find it. Okay? But for time's sake, we're going to move to chapter 4. And we're going to look first at verse 5. And this is the reality we need to reckon with. Walk in wisdom toward, toward who? Outsiders. How do you feel about that word? It's not a word I want to throw around a lot. But it, there's important truth to this word, outsiders. So that means, well, you, tell, you know what it means. It means there's insiders and there's outsiders. And some are in and some are not. And even for me to say that, pop culture religion's like, what? Even some Christians, what? Outsiders, you're going to call people outsiders? Hey, our job is to read and believe God's word. Pop culture, religion said there's no such thing as outsiders except for maybe those who say there are outsiders. Pop culture, religion believes every decent person is good enough for our nice, undefined God. Pop culture says you just need to be a generally nice person, believe something that feels right to you, be true to yourself and your spirituality, and that's good enough. You're in. That is common American religion. I don't care if you're officially Protestant or Catholic or Buddhist or anything else. That's what Americans believe. And it's not true. It's not true. Intellectually, it's so contradictory, we know it can't be true. We know it can't be true. Because ultimately, we're going to say contradictory things about God that cannot both be true. It's silliness. But moreover, Jesus says it's not true. There is such a thing as outsiders. Biblically speaking, there's really only two kinds of people. There's insiders. And there's outsiders. Test me on this. Test me on this. Read Psalm 1. And you're going to read about the righteous and the wicked how one kind lives, what, what, what one kind delights in, what, how the other kind lives, how, what, how, what the other delights in, and their futures. There's two kinds of people. Read Psalm 2, the next psalm. You're going to see the most important thing in your life is how you respond to God's king. And there's those who rejoice with trembling, and there's those who don't. Look what Jesus said. Matthew 7, 13. This is what Jesus said. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide in the way that easy that leads to, where? Destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. These are the words of our Lord. There's insiders and there's outsiders. And the most popular thing is usually the thing that leads to destruction. It's the narrow, hard way that leads to life. Again, it's not just cruelty. Where do we, what do we want? We want life. 
We want joy. We want peace. We want, we want life. But the way to it is narrow. It's hard. Why is it hard? I think the main reason it's hard is because it's humbling. It's humbling. But Jesus said there's outsiders. So how do you, how do you get to be an insider? This is really important for us in evangelism. We're taking this, we're reckoning with this reality of insider, outsider. How do you get to be an insider? Is it because of your race? No. Is it because of your gender? No. Political party? No. How about this one? Denomination? No. Religious performance? No. Niceness? No. Religious rule keeping? No. This is how, look at Jesus in John 14, 6. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth. My reverence is wrong. That's not 5, 6. It's 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now you tell me what Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did you see the line get drawn? How do you get to be an insider? You're connected to Jesus. He's the ultimate insider. He's the beloved of the Father from all eternity. He is in. And if you have him, by grace through faith, you are in. And if you don't have him, you're out. It's hard, isn't it? Do we say that because we're narrow? So I think the uh, condemnation of narrow is thoughtless and not considering uh, the worldviews, the realities, the situations of others. But when we, when we look to Jesus and we hear him and we submit to what he said, we're not being narrow, we're being honest. Okay? Number one, who said the way was narrow? Jesus. Is it narrow because only some people are invited? Who's invited to come to the gospel? Everyone is invited. It's narrow because it's hard. And it's narrow because of who Jesus is. If you do a religious survey, you look at the religious leaders, and they will generally come to tell you, hey, I'm here to show you the way. Do these things, and you'll make it. I'm showing you the way. And Jesus blows that up. Because he says, you haven't done these things, and you can't do these things, and there's no way that on your own you'll make it. But then he says, I'm the way. I am the way. It's so unique and so different. Is it true that only he could be the way to the Father? Who else claimed to be sinless and was? He's the only one. Who else predicted his death and resurrection according to ancient historical prophecies and then did it? Anyone? He's the only one. Who's the eternal son of God who lived a perfect life and then was fit to die on the cross for the sins of the world and then rose from the dead? Anyone else? He's the only one. So we're not being narrow in invitation. I guess the truth is, al is always narrow. Somebody gets mad at you for not believing in a, a round square. I don't know what to say. Squares have corners. No, you're just being narrow. It's true. It's true. So what does it mean to reckon with the reality of outsiders? It's heavy, isn't it? It's sober. We want to kind of coast in that cultural idea that generally nice people, as long as you sort of believe in something, it's all good and everybody's in. That's the message of our day. It's not true. And if it is true, then you should quit this whole Jesus thing. 
One has to be right. Jesus or pop culture religion. If you're going with Jesus, then there is such a thing as outsiders. So if that's true, if you reckon with that and you're thinking of these people that you know and you love and you interact with and you're taking seriously the reality of insider and outsider, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is, what do you want for the outsider? What do you want? Listen, I told you, even evangelism's uh, unfashionable because it seems self-righteous. Hey, Christian, is there any room for you and I to be self-righteous? Do you remember why I showed you the indicatives? How'd you get, how'd you get qualified to be a saint in light? Was that a bunch of good stuff you did? It was by grace. The Father did that for you. You can be thankful. You can't be self-righteous because you didn't do it. He delivered you out of the domain of darkness. You can be thankful, but you can't be patting yourself on the back. You didn't do it. You're in, you're in the kingdom. You're an insider through faith in Christ, but you can't be self-righteous about that. It was totally undeserved. God woke you up to the reality of Christ. Is there any room for self-righteousness in our evangelism? Zero. We can't be self-righteous. We're not being narrow. Do we have to risk being called judgmental? Do we have to risk that? Uh, I heard a speaker this week say, the more you understand the Bible, you see how high and holy God is. And you'll see how low and sinful humanity is. And the more you realize that, the more you'll treasure the grace of God in Christ that bridges that gap. And so, if you think of, you know, the, the narrative, hey, we're all generally good, and then you say, hey, God, the undefined God, he kind of, he loves you. And everybody who's thinking they're generally good, what do we do when we hear that the undefined God kind of loves us because we're generally good? Of course he does. Who doesn't love this? But do you know what comes before the good news of the gospel of the cross? What comes first? The truth of your need for the gospel. Again, test me. Read, read Romans 1. Read Romans 2. Read Romans 3. Before he hits the beautiful news of the gospel, he's hitting the deep need for the gospel. God is holy, and we've sinned against him. And he has wrath against sinners. And without Christ, we're outsiders. That has to be communicated. And somebody maybe won't like that. Are you being cocky when you tell them that truth? I mean, maybe. But should we be? Or, or let me ask it like this. Is it fundamentally cocky to share the reality that we're sinners in need of a Savior? Or are you just one beggar showing another one where the bread is? If the house is burning, wouldn't you want to tell somebody and get them out? If uh, somebody had a disease and they needed treatment, wouldn't you want to let them know so they could get the treatment? It's love. It's love. So we... We see we want to be grounded in the gospel. That humbles us. It makes us thankful. We're on the inside. We didn't deserve it. Then we reckon with the reality of the outsider, that it exists. It's a sorrow. It's sobering. It's a grief. But we want them to be in. We have no room for self-righteousness towards them. Zero. But in love for them, we want to invite them in. Isn't that right? Now let's look at the call to wisdom. That sets up the text that we'll spend the rest of our time in. Paul is thinking about how to act towards outsiders. How do we act towards them? And it's a call to wisdom. You're going to see this in three parts. Wise prayer. Wise walk. Wise talk. Wise prayer. Wise walk. Wise talk. So the first question to ask is, well, what is wisdom? 
And I got to tell you, as we go through this text, I am no expert on doing this text, okay? I'm just going to throw out my hypocrisy to you. I do not have this all together. I'm not always wise. I stumble into it occasionally. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge skillfully applied to everyday life. Fair enough? Wisdom is knowledge skillfully applied to everyday life. And oh, how easy it is to have knowledge and not have wisdom. Anybody there with me? I, I am so stuffed full of Christian knowledge, and I want to tell you I'm not demeaning that. That is a gift from God, and I'm so thankful to be able to be educated in things of God and His Word. I'm not demeaning it at all. Oh, but what a waste of knowledge if it doesn't turn into wisdom. So we're going to see Paul wants wise prayer, praying as if what you say you believe is true. How much would you pray if what you say you believe is true was really true to your heart? I'm going to bet you would pray more. I'm going to bet you would pray differently. Wise prayer. Or how about wise walk, how we live? The things I know and have counseled people about Christian life, how often do I not live it? How often do we not live out what we know? Or how about wise talk? We know so much. Does it come out in how we talk? The issue is wisdom. And so if you're already feeling like me, ooh, I could use more of this. That's why it's so wise that Paul starts with, with, uh, with what? Prayer. Prayer. God help me. So here's the thing to see. If you want to love outsiders and invite them in, the place to start is what? Prayer, prayer, prayer. Let me show you a little bit about wise prayer. Verse two, chapter four, verse two. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Wise prayer is steadfast. What does steadfast mean? You keep praying. You keep praying. This means time set apart for nothing but biblical prayer. It means also praying with every breath, and it means also praying about the outsiders. Pray, and it expresses dependency on God. I cannot do this. I cannot be wise without you. I need you. Pray, pray. It also says, be watchful in prayer. The idea of watchful means you're awake to the reality of danger. You're awake to the reality of getting it wrong. And so you're being watchful regarding your situations. And I think most of all, you're being watchful regarding your heart. Do you know your heart's in danger? The heart is your core self. And part of that heart, the Bible tells us, is still uh, the word flesh. And what does that mean? It's not talking about your aorta, skin, pumping, or whatever. The flesh, theologically is the remnants of your prideful, selfish, rebellious self. You have flesh. Have you noticed? If you need help, uh, I'm sure one of us could point it out to you. <laughs> It'd be a long day if I was like, church, I need help identifying my flesh. We'll be meeting at 4.30. Need your help. It'd be a line, you know, through the parking lot. Take me a week to get finished with that. It's still there. Would you be watchful when you're praying? Watchful about. Look at Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with what? All vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You should be looking at what you love. You should be looking at your emotional life. Your emotional life is telling you about what the mind of your heart truly thinks. You need to be praying about outsiders. Because we're reminded here, your functional, actual prayer life shows you what you truly, actually love and care about. So in the secret places, God sees how much you care about the outsider, for one thing, based on how much you pray for the outsider. The more we care the more we pray. The more we pray, the more we care. The less we pray, 
the less we care. Pray steadfastly. Pray in a way that's watchful. Wise prayer is watchful. And wise prayer is thankful. And that takes us back to what we saw already, right? What do we need to remember when we pray? When we're feeling condemned as we pray? When we're feeling overwhelmed as we pray? What do we need to remember? I'm grounded in the gospel. It's not according to my works. I've been saved. I've been qualified. It's not according to how great I pray. Praise God. Jesus prayed perfectly in my place. I'm grounded there. And God's still working in my life. And he's still working in these situations. God, I thank you that you're here. You're not gone. You haven't moved away. Wise prayer is thankful. Wise prayer is steadfast, watchful, thankful. It's also evangelistic. It's also evangelistic. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. At the same time, pray for us. So Paul's talking. He and his apostolic group. And what are they asking for? Prayer. If Paul needs prayer, guess what that means for me and you? You need prayer. Pray for those who are sharing the gospel. Please pray for me. As the main preacher in your little local church, pray for me. Pray for God's help, God's character, God's wisdom, God's work. Pray for me. Pray for yourself. Pray for character, courage, love. Pray for those who are going to share the gospel. And not only that, pray for opportunities. Look, he says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. It's an opportunity to communicate the gospel where people can and want to consider it. It's an opportunity to have that conversation. An opportunity to have that stage. Pray for it. Have you ever looked at your life evangelistically and thought, boy, I haven't done this in a while? What should you do? Pray. Pray for opportunities. And not, th this shows us two things. Number one, who makes the opportunities? God does. He makes opportunities. Pray for it. It's another thing as well. Who's going to show you the opportunities that are already there that you have been blundering by every day? He will. He'll show you. He'll make them. He'll show you. I dare you to pray for opportunities. I dare you. Not only that, he says, pray for clarity. Pray that God will open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it, what? Clear. And this is amazing. This is the man who wrote Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, etc. The man is clear on the gospel. He wrote Galatians. He's crystal clear. And what does he pray for? Clarity when I'm talking. Clarity when I'm sharing. Why? Because it's tough. Pressures on what people are thinking or feeling, where they're coming from, how much time you have. And you. What is clarity? Pray for clarity that we can really teach the actual gospel. By the way, I want to ask you, I want to ask you, are you able to clearly present the gospel to someone? You. Can you do that? If, somebody, if a friend said to you, what is, what, I heard you use the word gospel. What is that? Can you do it? Do you know the necessary ingredients? Can you discuss it? When you discuss it, can you actually talk about the bad news that precedes the good news? When you discuss it, does it actually sound like good news? You need to answer that for yourself. And if you realize, you know what, I don't think I can share the gospel clearly. I want to ask you, what else is a greater priority in your life than getting that straight? There's little bookmarks I hope some of you got with kind of a, a summary of the gospel on it. It's not perfect, but I think it's strong. And if you need help trying to get through the clarity on what is this thing I'm sharing, look at that bookmark. Keep it with you. Think through it. Make sure you have clarity on the gospel. Pray for it. So the first thing is, um, walking towards outsiders, we need wisdom. And the, first, the, the foundation of this is wise prayer. Secondly, what's the first word in verse 5? Do you see it? What is it? First word in verse 5. 
Because we're talking about sharing the gospel, right? What's the first word in verse 5? You need to see it. Walk. You think it's uh, significant that before you talk, you walk? You think that's significant? Oh, let me tell you. It's significant. Uh, there's a myth that some uh, ancient saint said, um, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? Let me just light that on fire for you, uh, sing, you know, symbolically. That is total foolishness, okay? How can you preach the gospel without words? That's insanity. Of course you have to have words. You think somebody's going to get saved by how nice you are? Please. They're just going to think you're a Mormon, Niceness has never saved anyone, but niceness plus the gospel is very compelling. Walk in, in a, it, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. What is your walk? Look at Colossians 1.10. Colossians 1.10. This is Paul's prayer for God's people as well. Walk in what? A manner of... Worthy of the Lord. What does that kind of life look like? It's worthy of Jesus. Walk means everyday life. It's your lifestyle. It's how you live. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Look at the next phrase. Fully pleasing to him. Did you know it's possible for you to live in a way that doesn't please Jesus who bought you with his blood? Bearing fruit in every good work. Good work doing good. Showing love and increasing in the knowledge of God. So which, was, which one was it? Was it growing in your theological knowledge or doing good things? Looked like both to me. Your walk matters. So there's a danger in talking too hard and too fast, isn't there? There's a danger. How does it make the gospel look when the people who share the gospel are not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, that gets us where we are today, right? That gets us where we are today. We want to illustrate, beautify the gospel in how we live. Walk. So I want to ask you, if your skeptic friend at work or your skeptic neighbor asked you this question, what would you say? If your skeptic friend said, has Jesus really changed your life to be that much different or better than mine? What would you say? What could you say? Or do you kind of just look like them? Walk. A wise walk, Paul says. A wise walk. A wise walk is winsome. Do you guys know that word? Winsome. It's a wonderful word. It means attractive or appealing in appearance or character. It's the idea of a delicious meal. Have you ever had the experience, maybe you're in an outdoor mall, and you weren't feeling hungry, but you walked by a certain restaurant and went, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, you realize you're starving. Or you're walking around in the neighborhood and your neighbor's grilling. You weren't feeling hungry. I'm hungry. Our lives are supposed to be like that. Our lives are supposed to be like that. Somebody just living out their day and they encounter us regularly and they go, there's hungers I didn't know I had being stirred up because of this person. That's what it means to be winsome. How, how does this happen? I'm thinking about how to illustrate this, and, and I'm no expert at this, but I was drawn to Galatians 5, and 23 and the fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at this just for a moment. Imagine you having these, these qualities in a strange way, in a I smell that kind of a way. Are we strangely loving? Are you strangely joyful? Are you strangely peaceful? Are you strangely patient with people? Are you strangely kind and good? 
Are you strangely faithful when everyone else is flaking? Are you strangely gentle? Do you have a strange amount of self-control? Now, if you're like me, I mean, I just got crushed asking myself these questions. I got crushed. Praise God, we're not saved by this. I should get a resounding amen, okay? So we got to go back to being grounded in the gospel. Jesus was like this. But guess what he wants to do in you? He wants to gather us together so that we'll grow in the gospel. And then he wants to scatter us to spread the gospel. And it looks like this. Different. So this will take you back to praying again, won't it? Jesus, if somebody was going to be attracted by my joy today and my patience today, help me. Help me. Help us. Help us. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Be winsome. And then it says, making the best use of the time. The best use of the time. You know you get this much time with everybody? That's part of the atmosphere here. You get limited time. For some people, this much is 55 years. And for other people, it's five minutes. But in any case, it does not go on forever. And Paul says, make the best use of your time with outsiders. And the Greek word here actually is the same we saw back in chapter 1 where it says you were redeemed. By Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling Christians that in the same way you were redeemed by Christ. I mean, he came and got you, right? He came and got you. Redeem the time. You go and you get that time. Here's how I'm confronted again. I don't know about you. Like, I finally make it to the gym. I'm busy. I'm stressed. I got blinders on like a horse pulling a carriage. I can see this far in front of me. And all I want to do is like do my thing and leave. Oh, people. I don't care, I'm busy. Make the best use of the time. Redeem the time. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And Paul is so into this. Do you know where he's writing from? We heard it referenced. Prison. He's writing from prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And so what did Paul do on pri in prison? He could say, hey, I've done my part, right? Nothing more I can do now. No, he's evangelizing soldiers chained to him. And he's writing letters to the churches. He's making the most of the time. And aren't you glad we have the New Testament? Friends, the difficulties we think excuse us from sharing with outsiders may be our best opportunities for sharing with outsiders. Because this is where what we have in Jesus can stand out. Use your suffering for the gospel. Use your trials for the gospel. Make the best use of the time. Wise prayer. What's the second part? Wise walk. Well, now we get to what you thought I was going to talk about the whole time. Wise talk. Look at verse 6. Let your speech, somebody tell me the next word, because this is tough. I want you to see I didn't make this up. Always be gracious. Let's just stop there. Always gracious. My speech is like a volatile stock. Anybody ever tried the stock market? Have mercy. And it goes up, and sometimes my speech is glorious and gospel-centered, and then, man, the next day that sucker drops hard. And I'm back into kind of vanilla nothing. And then every once in a while, I hit the dumpster fire. And man, oh man, I hope this is not recorded. Did I really say that? Do you see the power of this word always? When you're with an outsider, you need to remember something about how you talk. And what's the next word? Always. Have mercy. Have mercy. How many times have we denied the gospel by our gossip with those who don't know the Lord? By talking crap about our families or our church. Because you felt whatever. 
We weren't gracious. And the subtext on that was, nothing to see here on this gospel thing. Have mercy. I'm so confronted by this text. Always gracious. The next word, gracious. Culturally, for Paul's world, this word meant charming. Interesting. Attractive. Like a delicious meal. You weren't even hungry, but you saw it. You smelled it. What's that? That's the way our speech is supposed to sound. Of course, Paul infuses it with Christian truth, the beautiful truth of God's grace. Friends, our speech with outsiders should always be charming, tasty, interesting, thought-provoking, and not repellent in its manner, in its method. Does that mean we don't talk about the reality of sin or the need for a Savior? Of course not. Of course not. But it means the way that we do that is gracious. It's gracious. Seasoned with salt, Paul says. Seasoned. You know, I like a a little chili powder on my spaghetti sauce. Anybody else? These have a little depth for me. Okay? I remember a missions trip I was on as a kid where dude cook spilled, you know, it's bulk. He spilled the chili powder in the spaghetti sauce. And, of course, this thing's on a budget, so it's like, sorry, this is what we have to eat. And when they put that mess on your plate, you could feel the heat as you got towards the plate. And, you know, you come close. I'm not eating this. I can't eat this. Don't get me wrong. I like chili powder at home. like, I can't eat this. It's too much. And this is Paul's illustration for our talk and how much Jesus is in it. Listen, guys, for some of you, someone would have to get a private investigator to find out whether or not you're a Christian. We followed them, and they didn't actually make it to church one Sunday. Well, that doesn't mean they're a Christian. I know, but uh, it just doesn't come out in the way you talk. There's no flavor. For others of you, you went to Costco, and you got the 50-pound bag of salt, and you put it on your shoulder, and you split it down the middle, and you dumped that mess on their plate, and it spilled over onto their lap, and you said, eat the gospel. And they said, it's a little sharp. Do you see? And for me, I can make the, both mistakes in the same day. Pretendo Christian, salt machine gun Christian. Do you see what Paul's saying? Seasoned. With salt. It's interesting. It's got truth in it. You put a rock in their shoe, but they can eat it, and it tastes good. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. It's wise talk. Not only that, it's wise to the moment. This is such a powerful call. Look at this. Your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to, what's that next word? Answer each person. Don't you wish you just had like a document and you're like, you'd like to talk about the gospel? Paul says, no, it's not actually wisdom. You need to know the gospel and its inner working so well that you're able to give this person what they need in the moment wisely. Because you can't do it all every time. You can't go start to finish every time. You, you have one, one moment, and it takes the Holy Spirit's wisdom to know what this person needs right here and right now. And there's a danger of being too soft, and there's a danger of being too hard. And so you pray for wisdom, and you answer the person wisely. But that word answer, what does that infer to you? What's behind an answer? What's been happening? They asked you a question. Why would they ask you a question. Because you've been interesting in how you live and what you say. And if no one's ever asking us questions, do we taste? It's a hard text, isn't it? Do we taste? Wise text that's wise to the moment. So how do we get wisdom like this? 
I wish I had, you know, like a, a wisdom shot. Take it, give it to you. I think this text is making us look for wise preparation. Wise preparation. If you want to know how to answer questions, maybe you read a book about apologetics on how to answer questions. If you want to know your way around the New Testament more, maybe you study the New Testament harder. Or how about this? If you want to know how to answer the person wisely in the time, guess what else you need to study? You need to study the person. How do you do this? Let me show you two Proverbs. One is me, and the next one is the way I want to be. Proverbs 18.13. This is me far too often. Are you ready? If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame. Christianity came up, and I'm, (laughs) I got answers. What did I not do? I didn't hear, which means what was I? Folly? Help me out. I wasn't wise. What's the opposite of being wise? I was a fool. Talk, talk, talk. No questions. Fool. Fool. Ask questions. Look at the next verse, Proverbs 25. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, which means that outsider doesn't even know everything in, that, in, in his or her heart. But the man or woman of understanding will do what? Draw out. Draw out what? The desires of the heart. How do you do that? Friendship and questions. Friendship and questions. And then you know, you know more, don't you, about how to answer. I'm as confronted as anybody in the room. So let's go back to the beginning. I told you we need to be grounded in what? The gospel. Aren't you glad you're not saved by how wise you are towards outsiders? No one would make it. We're saved by how wise Jesus was in his life, in his death, in his resurrection from the dead. That's where our grounding is. But now as we gather to grow in the gospel, we also want to scatter to spread the gospel. So here's, here's the word I want you to use. Grow. Grow in how you scatter to spread the gospel. Grow. And so I want to ask you this question. What's one way you really want to grow in how you encounter outsiders. Maybe it's something in your prayers. Pray wisely. Start praying. Start praying harder. Number two, maybe it's something in how you live. Maybe you look at your life and you see something you say, that does not make Jesus look good. Attack that mess. Maybe there's something you can add. Love, joy, peace, patience. Pray. Walk. And then talk. Let Jesus be in your speech. The beauty of God's truth, let it be in your speech. And pray and work towards that balance of there's salt in there. That's tasty. That's different. But it's seasoned. Edible. So that you can have an answer. And you can, uh, you can make the most of every opportunity to answer each person. So this is what we're saying as far as our mission goes. Wouldn't it be great? Guess what we do every Sunday? We scatter. Scatter to do what? May you scatter to spread the gospel. Wise walk. Wise talk that comes from wise prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to be people who make the gospel look good. In what we say and in what we do. And so we pray right now that you'd help us be further grounded in the gospel. It would dominate our sense of who we are and why we're here and what we love. And we pray, Lord, that we would reckon with the reality of millions of outsiders all around. God, help us to grow in walking with wisdom towards them. Help us to pray, to pray, to pray for opportunities, for clarity. Help us to walk wisely in a way that highlights your truth and your beauty. Forgive us, God, for all the times we lacked the fruit of your spirit. 
and help us to talk wisely, to be quick to bring up the beauty of our God and what he's done, to be quick to bring up Jesus. And Lord, give us that insight, those questions, so that we can know how to deal our best with each person. And we thank you, ultimately, that nobody's getting saved by how slick we were or how awesome we were. We remember it's our Father who qualifies people, who saves people. It's your work, Lord. We just ask that you would use us and would be the, we would be the sharpest tools that we could be. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.